Alyssa, would you like to pray us in? Yes, I would. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for opening our eyes to see you and our ears to hear you. Lord, we play, we pray that you would bless our podcast, bless the words that come out of our mouth, Lord, and we pray that the Spirit would guide us because we can't say or do anything without your help. So we just pray that you would guide our conversations and that you would be present in this room. Um, we know where two or more gather in your name, there you are with them. So we pray that you would be with us and we know that you are with us. God, we love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Oh, you're welcome. I think we should just get right into it. Okay. And uh, introduce ourselves. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. But first, I'm going to introduce the podcast. Okay. Welcome to our Christian book club, where we hope to learn more about each other through the character of God. Alyssa, would you like to introduce yourself? I will, yes. Um, hi. My name's Alyssa. I'm a student at Liberty University. That's that's in Virginia. I go online, for those of you that don't know. And yes, yeah, my favorite cookie, that is our icebreaker question, Shay. Icebreaker question, what is your favorite cookie? My favorite cookie is just your straight up chocolate chip cookie. Best cookie. It's a classic answer. Cla- yeah, it, it is. A little bit basic, but it's okay. And um, mini, very brief testimony, um, I was not raised in a Christian home. I met one of my friends through water polo in high school, and she started bringing me to church. And about a year later, I accepted Christ into my life, and I've been a Christian for about three years ever since. So, yeah. Jumping off of that, my name is Yale. That is my real actual name. <laughs> it's given to me. Uh, from my grandfather. It was his name. I am an independent filmmaker uh, who delivers as a courier when I am not filming, uh, and as well as invest in my free time. I graduated college, and my favorite cookie is a Russian tea cookie. What is that? It's like a sugar cookie. So I also wrote or sugar cookie. So I had... <laughs> I had anticipated this question. Oh, okay. It's like a sugar cookie, but it's um, it's thick. Kind of looks like a blob. <laughs> and okay. it's covered in powdered sugar as if there wasn't already enough sugar in it. Yeah. Sometimes there's like nuts too. It's really good. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm yeah. not a not a Russian spy, but they make really good cookies. Oh, are you sure you're not though? Because I mean... Anyways, uh, <laughs> my testimony is that... Uh, I came to Christ, uh, I think it's four years ago now. I also, I was saved by Christ. I was going through a hard time and I had a friend in college who invited me to church and the sermon really shifted my whole perspective on who God is and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I, uh, I was saved and it really, it took a huge burden off me. And I could go deeper and go on and on, but because uh, it definitely didn't make any, everything rosy right after that. But it gave me um, a lot of peace and and love for life and myself. So yeah, I'm just so grateful. I uh, like Alyssa. Also, was not raised in a Christian household, and I'm definitely the weird one out at uh, Thanksgiving. Yeah, feel that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And through Christ, I was able to meet this lovely lady, and we're now podcasting. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I did just realize I forgot to set the timer. <laughs> oh, no. Should be okay. Yeah, it's fine. I'm going to start it now. There we go. Okay. Now we have a better sense of what's happening. Cool. And where we are in space time. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. Would you like to introduce the book or shall I? I think we discussed. Yeah, I think. I. Yeah, I so. think you're doing it. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to break down mere Christianity as best we can. You know, I just realized something that we forgot to mention is we're both pretty young. I'm 24 and i'm 19 yeah yeah we're not um pro apologist scholar theologians guys so just like bear with us you know yes but you are going to christian university and you are much more studied in the old and new testament than i am like if you saw her bible it is thick (laughs) it's just like notes on notes uh like summaries of passages, underlines, multicolored highlighters. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. Yeah. My Christian girls, they know about the highlighters, the no bleed Bible highlighters. Yeah. That's where it's at. Yeah. I use a, I underline sometimes <laughs> and I read, uh, honestly, less than I should. It used to be every day, once a day for about an hour, but you know how it is in your 20s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, life gets busy, but, yeah. you know. It's not a good excuse. This is this is true. Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, we read through the preface and the first two chapters, and here's a brief summary of uh, some quotes by C.S. Lewis. People ask, who are you to lay down who is and who is not a Christian? Or may not many a man who cannot believe these doctrines be far more truly a Christian far closer to the spirit of Christ than some who do. It has every amiable quality except that of being useful. I will try to make this clear by the history of another and very much less important word. The word gentleman originally meant something recognizable. Before I go on, in this moment of the preface, C.S. Lewis is basically saying, so what is a Christian and what is the purpose of pointing it out? And before my critics say... I'm just going to lay down a bunch of morals. No, I'm going to lay down the complexities of what it means to be a follower of Christ. He's also going in with this gentleman argument, using the word gentleman to say, this is how words have been sort of whittled away into nothing. And this is why he doesn't want to say what is and isn't a Christian, because it's just going to do more to whittle the word away. So I'll go on. As C.S. Lewis writes, the word gentleman originally meant something recognizable. When a word ceases to be a term of description and becomes merely a term of praise, it no longer tells you facts about the object. It only tells you about the speaker's attitude to that object. So in that paragraph, he went on to say that gentleman was once a phrase for more or less wealthy landowners, but then was used so superfluously that it became a word just to describe an all right fella, basically losing all of its meaning. Mm -hmm. He goes on. Refining or deepening the sense of the word Christian will too speedily make it become a useless word. It is not for us to say who, in the deepest sense, is or is not close to the spirit of Christ. He then goes on a couple paragraphs later. I hope no reader will suppose that mere Christianity is here put forward as an alternative to the creeds of the existing communions. It is more like a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. 
If I can bring another into that hall, I shall have done what I attempted. But it is in the rooms, not in the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. Mm. So I think with this introduction, he's basically saying the book is for non-Christians and Christians on the fence, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Christians who aren't really sure of their beliefs fully Mm. is how I interpreted it. Yeah. I think it's also really great for believers to read because he presents like excellent apologetic arguments. So when you find yourself in those conversations with say like unbelievers, I know believers talk about all the time, like when I'm talking to someone, sometimes I don't know how to answer this. This is a great book for that. I mean, all of C.S. Lewis's books are great for that because he's a genius, but. Yes, the best armor for conversations with secular um, non-believers is always the gospel and the Mm. word of God. But I think for us, for us laymen, it's very hard to break down the word of God in a way that a non-believer can understand mm-hmm. and appreciate. And that's where I think this book is going to do as well and serve us um, just as God. And we serve him. Yeah. I don't know what I was saying there at the end. I kind of jumbled it. but No, it's okay. I, I got it. I think they'll get it. Great. Yeah. Yeah. That's the summary of the beginning of mere Christianity. I think we're ready to get into chapters one and two. Yes. I have many things underlined and you have notes. So Mm -hmm. shall I go through my underlines and you can stop me whenever you have notes on the the matter or I may stop when I have something to say or you may stop me when you have something to say. Sure. Okay. (laughs) Free flow it. Yeah. Go ahead. Chapter one, the law of human nature. Everyone has heard people quarreling. They say things like, how do you like it if anyone did the same to you? Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. Mm. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality, or whatever you like to call it, about which they really agreed. Now this law, or rule about right and wrong, used to be called the law of nature. What they really meant was the law of human nature. Right, so this law of human nature is today what I think generally apologists would call absolute morality. And it's something very interesting, actually, that I've heard a few stories on, because when you ask pretty much any believer, like, hey, do you believe in absolute morality, meaning that morality isn't objective, that it's either, yes, this is moral, or no, it's not, and there's no in-between. Most believers would say yes, of course, but um, I've read where very many believers have asked non-believers, and they would say, no, morality is objective. And... I was I was reading this one article by a professor and he used to be a counselor I believe at a juvenile detention center and he's talking to this kid who used to be in like gangs and he just got in big trouble obviously and ended up there and this kid's talking about how he used to steal from like the rich or something because they deserve it because they're rich and they're better than us and you know we're in a gang and we're poor and Um, This guy goes, so you think it was moral of you to steal from people just because they were richer than you? And he goes, well, yeah. And he's like, so morality you're saying is objective in that it's not absolute because stealing isn't necessarily always wrong. Kid goes, yeah. 
So guy goes, okay, and this kid has a boombox with him. And he straight up takes the kid's boombox and walks out the door. And this kid's yelling at him going, hey, what are you doing? That's mine. Bring that back. And he's like, but you just said it's not always wrong to steal. I wanted this boombox, so I took it. And then, of course, the kid gets it. So meaning what C.S. Lewis is saying here, I think, is that people think, yeah, morality is objective until something happens to me. Because then it's like, wait, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Well, two seconds ago, you just said it was, but it wasn't happening to you. So that's what I got from that first part. Yeah. Yeah, that's right on. It's so cool that you have an anecdote for that. I haven't heard that before. Yeah, I thought it was really funny. (laughs) It just stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of anything for my life um, so specific, but I mean, I know that, yeah, when something happens to you or around you, there's like this pit in your stomach that develops that's like, wait a minute, that didn't feel right mm-hmm. and yeah it's just fascinating mm-hmm. and he goes on i know that some people say the idea of a law of nature or decent behavior known to all men is unsound because different civilizations and different ages have had quite different moralities but this is not true if anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of say the ancient egyptians babylonians Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very likely they are to each other and to our own. I need only ask the reader to think what a totally different morality would mean. Right, so essentially everyone must believe in the law of nature because as we just talked about, they're upset when something like that they would describe as wrong happens to them. And also because they're anxious to make excuses for their own indecent behavior. Well, if you're so stressed out about your behavior, it must be indecent. Therefore, there must be some sense of wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. And yes, and where does that decency come from? Yeah. He goes on just after that. I didn't underline it. I probably should. Should have. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. Mm. I think of the story Crime and Punishment by now I've really ousted myself you were all going to think oh wow he knows literature can't even remember the author's name <laughs> Dostoevsky now, oh, Dostoevsky <laughs> and I believe the protagonist's name is Igor but I'm pretty sure that's totally wrong I might just be saying that because he's Russian <laughs> okay. but for this for the purpose of this argument, <laughs> okay. we're going to call him Igor. Let's call him that. That sounds good to me. <laughs> now, this fellow is down on his luck. He's a rotten soul, really. He's kind of despicable, doesn't like anybody, and he's really down on himself, too, and down on the world around him. He's poor. He has been all of his life, and he's struggling to pay rent, struggling to pay his university fees, and this is all taking place just before the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in the early 1900s. And he's living in this terrible, dingy flat. There's rats everywhere. And he, to get by, basically sells junk to this old lady. This old lady's home, or apartment, really, is full of jewels and, like, rich antiquities. And rich things from antiquity, rather. And he develops this, like, seething sort of hatred for her and for her jewels and begins arguing with himself now, no joke for like a hundred pages. It's really tedious. Wow. Arguing with himself. And 
to some degree the world around him about why this lady doesn't deserve anything she has and why he does instead. Hmm. And he eventually builds up this argument in his head to the point where he argues that she doesn't even deserve her life. Wow. And in a fit of frustration and rage, he, spoiler alert, he kills her. He kills the old lady and is so shocked after killing her that he forgets to take anything and runs away. Wow. And then over the course of the rest of the book, I didn't finish it, but over the course of the rest (laughs) of the book, he drives himself crazy over killing this lady because he keeps getting away with it little bit by little bit, but he becomes a totally different person. He becomes like physically catatonic for a few weeks from the disbelief of what he had done to this woman. And even though he built this argument of why he deserved this, why she didn't deserve to live, because she was a nasty woman um, who just happened to be wealthy or wealthier than him, at least. He was broken after committing this crime, this crime that he got away with. So everybody got away with it. He had supposedly justified it, but there was something deeply sickening that took over him Mm -hmm. after committing it for real. Yeah. And I think the reason that book is still so, I mean, it's still known today, Crime and Punishment. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one of his most famous works is because there's a real truth in that, that the average human, not a psychopath or sociopath, will feel deeply, deeply terrible after committing such an act. But even then, even if you are a psychopath or a sociopath, maybe you will feel something deeply terrible too. Mm-hmm. You'll just have different mechanisms to cover it. So I guess what this chapter is getting into is like, where does that moral root come from? Yeah. And there's a, and in reading it, I found, it's like I used to love, love reading about science and thinking about science, and especially evolutionary biology. So reading this chapter just made me think, well, the reason that human beings feel so so strongly about these secret morals like honor, like um, defending the household, protecting the weak, um, you know, justice. Why we feel so strongly about justice was a biological mechanism for our survival because perhaps in tribal settings, the individual who stood up for the weak was rewarded by the strong because maybe the weak provided something the strong didn't. Mm -hmm. Or maybe women in the villages could have been selecting these compassionate men because they saw virtue in that or they saw greater protection in that. I don't know. I'm not a biologist. But that's where I I can see sort of like the natural argument coming in here. Mm -hmm. But then where does that come from? Yeah. Yeah, and he addresses um, objections in chapter two, which we'll get into in a hot minute here. But that one is right at the beginning. That's his first objection. He jumps right into the herd instinct. But um, is there anything else on chapter one? I had a couple more underlines. Uh, Might as well read them. It seems then, this is C.S. Lewis, we are forced to believe in a real right and wrong. People may be sometimes mistaken about them, but they are not a matter of mere taste and opinion any more than the multiplication table. None of us are really keeping the law of nature. That's a real tenet of Christianity, I think, mm-hmm. is that even though 
we all this is not C.S. Lewis. This is just this is me. Yeah. <laughs> this is a real tenet of Christianity in that we all feel these morals, religious or not. Yeah. Which is why many religious people, like I think a famous, well, something that I used to tell myself a lot, and I heard other people like me say, was I don't need religion. I already know morals and yeah. know morality. Yeah. But that's not the point. Yeah. The point is we break morality all the time. And just as Igor, whatever his name was, (laughs) we make excuses in our mind for why it's okay in this moment to break morality and why we forgive ourselves. But we don't really forgive ourselves. Yeah. We're lying to ourselves, which is why Jesus is so important. Yeah. It's because his testimony does forgive us. Yeah. It's like, yeah, even if it's something small, you still feel guilty about it after, even though you make all these justifications, it's like, okay, what is speaking to me to the point where I still feel bad about this? You know, it's just something very innate in nature. It's very fascinating, but please continue. Just a few more lines here. If we do not believe, this is C.S. Lewis, in decent behavior, why should we be so anxious to make excuses for not having behaved decently? The truth is, we believe in decency so much, we feel the rule of law pressing on us so, that we cannot bear to face the fact that we are breaking it. And consequently, we try to shift the responsibility. It is only our bad temper that we put down to being tired or worried or hungry. We put our good temper down to ourselves. Human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. They do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature. They break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess I was, as I was saying before, is that I think Christianity made me see that. I don't know if it necessarily has that effect for everybody, but... Christianity really did a great job in my life of just turning the mirror on myself and making me see, oh, I can't be this, like, perfect, good, moral creature who's just, the world is just dumping on. Because none of us are that. Yeah. And if you look at Jesus, he literally was that. Mm -hmm. And look how the world rewarded him. Yeah. Yeah, I was even just reading something today for school about how human beings are paradoxes. And, like, how we often try to look at each other as one single thing. Because it's easier to just put one label on something. Like, we're, if things are going good in our life, like, we're good. If things are going bad, we're bad. But the reality is we're always both at the same time. And that's just the paradox of humanity. Because, I mean, God himself is a paradox in so many ways. And we're made in his image. So it, it makes sense. But, yeah. Um, are we moving on to chapter two then? Because chapter two is all about the objections. And he makes three objections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to move on to chapter two. Um, I also, as before, I have more underlines. So I'm not just taking the wheel here. I am a little bit. But it's because (laughs) I uh, have so many underlines in my copy. And I thought it important that we get C.S. Lewis's words in and then discuss them. Um, Alyssa has many notes here and good insights. Otherwise, she'd be reading. (laughs) So is it okay if I continue with... uh, with my yes. book, and yes. then we'll jump back and forth. Great. Go for it. Chapter 2. Some Objections. Some people wrote to me saying, isn't what you call the moral law simply 
our herd instinct, and hasn't it been developed just like all other natural instincts? Now, I do not deny that we may have a herd instinct, but that is not what I mean by the moral law. So the beginning he just addresses the scientific approach to morality, which is just this is how we've learned to adapt and survive, which is true. Of course we have instincts, but morality is separate from that, if that makes sense. Like the analogy he's about to use is very interesting and I'm sure you have some part of that underlined, so I'll let you keep reading. I actually don't think I underlined it because I disagreed with it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. I should have underlined it because I disagreed with it, but I'm in reading ahead a little bit here. think I just jumped to the next argument. Do you have any of it underlined on your text? I... It's the second paragraph here. Yeah. Yeah, I see it. I have a little bit of it underlined. I mainly just wrote notes about it because it made sense to me. But... Well, what was his argument? So his illustration was based on like a piano. He said... Yes, while we have herd instincts, those are the keys. Our morality is what tells us to play the keys. The keys themselves can't tell us how to play it. It's our morality that tells us how to play our instincts. Because our instincts aren't inherently bad. They just tell us what we want. Like, we're hungry or, you know, we need this or that. But our morality tells us how to play it. Or not play it because sometimes like one instinct is stronger than another mm -hmm. like i have an example because we w i watched titanic with um yale for the first time the other day and there was this scene in it that reminded me of this but um i wanted to hear what do you think about that see i think that's why i disagreed with it and didn't underline it, is because i thought it was a really weak analogy because we may experience I think what he's trying to say is we experience them as the same thing or similar thing, but they're two different things. Hmm. And that's his argument. And I don't agree with that. And I don't know how he can know that for sure. Because I think it's a lot harder to just to just sum up and say our instincts are X, Y, mm -hmm. Z is morality and push it totally in a separate box. Because I don't think we can know that for sure. I think I stated it before where I said... There's a rational argument that is these morals have been evolved into us mm. over time. I don't know. I think because if morality has in fact improved and evolved over time, people must have recognized something's wrong to begin with. Like you look at, say, Christian morality compared to Nazi morality. Well, I think most people would agree that Christian morality is much better than Nazi morality, even though both believe that they're doing the right thing. So I think there must be some set of absolute morality that originated from something for people to want to keep improving upon it. And he talks about that later. Um, that's where I'm kind of drawing that from. But yeah, it, I think it definitely started as something and keeps improving over time. I see what you mean. Whereas Nazi morality is very much an in-group morality. Yeah. It's very much that we are doing the right thing for our herd. Whereas the Christian morality is we are doing the right thing for the world's herd mm -hmm. and the people of all earth. Yeah. It's, um, it's really a double-edged sword there because, man, I don't want to get down this rabbit hole, <laughs> but Christian morality has had dark times mm -hmm. 
So it's not to say that Christian morality is necessarily supreme, but it is older and has gone through those evolutionary hiccups. And I'm talking about like the Crusades and uh, Inquisition, things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. So that is to say they are different things, but I do believe that they were evolved in humans just the same. What's the is the argument then that Nazi morality com- comes from something else, Satan perhaps, but Christian morality comes from God? Because both can be manipulated by the other. Yeah. Yeah, I think the argument is that there is just a morality within all of us that we don't know where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And people kind of maybe twist and put labels on. But there is deep down a universal sense of morality, I guess. And that is something that keeps being improved upon because... I think it because it keeps getting twisted and people keep trying to label it and it's like no like we have this sense because we are made in the image of a creator with this sense and I think it just keeps getting twisted but I don't know if that makes sense I think I see what you're what you're saying picking up what I'm putting down yeah I'm picking it up (laughs) let's move on before we get too too stuck in this one paragraph yeah guys this is just a thinker C.S. Lewis goes on. Another way of seeing that the moral law is not simply one of our instincts is this. If two instincts are in conflict and there is nothing in a creature's mind except those two instincts, obviously the stronger of the two must win. Did I say that clearly? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes on to say, I mean, he he lays out another clear example that I didn't didn't underline. (laughs) Right. So if you saw a man drowning, this is his example, I'm paraphrasing. If you saw a man drowning, your instincts, according to C.S. Lewis, tell you, I want to be safe. I want to be dry. Mm -hmm. But your moral humanity starts whispering to you, and it's a smaller voice saying, well, first it's probably saying, someone should really go in and help that guy. Yeah, and then it starts getting a little bit louder and it's like I think you should go in and help that guy but then your instincts are speaking so much louder because they're trying to keep you safe Mm -hmm. and I think this here is a really good argument for where they bridge because it's two different feelings inside of you happening at once I still think they could be of the same device which is instincts and uh, that he this this character in this moment is is battling i i suppose a human nature as well as a a more divine purpose which is to watch for your fellow man and lead into the future and i would say or c.s lewis goes on to argue that um it's the smaller voice the whisper that hardly gets recognized, but but somebody acts upon that comes from the divine Holy Spirit. I would argue that yes, that is, I think, a good example of that. But also, it's extraordinary individuals 
who choose to listen to that small inkling of do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's where it comes down to the argument, well, isn't that God's divine hand? Mm-hmm. And I say yes. Yeah. I, I, I suppose the divinity comes from the choice, not so much itself. Yeah. But I, I really see his argument and I, could, I see where I could be wrong. Yeah. I guess thinking about my Titanic example now, there's that part towards the end where, if y'all have seen it, um, Jack and Rose are stuck behind a gate and behind like one of the, I don't know, it's like an elevator gate or what it is. No, I don't think so. I think it's just one of the gate that blocks off the, the rooms. But anyways, there's one of the employees walking by and he has the key, but the water is like flooding in really fast and it's rising up the boat and he's trying to escape but Jack and Rose are stuck behind the skate and they're like yelling for his help and he's just standing on the stairwell like staring at them for much longer than he should have been and then finally he just like goes oh and he goes down and he tries to help them out but then he drops the keys in the water and then he's like okay well forget this and then he leaves so I think in that moment where he's watching them, like, trying to figure out what to do, like, that's where you can see his morality overriding his instinct to be safe and try to not die. But then, of course, when he he drops the keys in the water and he thinks, like, oh, hope is lost, okay, I'm leaving. Like, that's the part, I think, where his instincts overrode his morality. Mm-hmm. So I think it just depends on what you decide to listen to because you have that, like, conscious power to decide what you're going to listen to. Mm-hmm. But it's important to note that, like, listening to the moral mechanism, which I'm now calling it, <laughs> is dangerous. Yeah. It goes against your instincts, mm-hmm. which is why I can see why C.S. Lewis argues that it's separate from instinct. I still believe that it's something evolved in us because there is a there is a, a cost some benefit to it mm. of, yes, I'm risking my life, I'm risking my limb here, but the benefit is... I am recognized by my fellow tribe as one to be trusted uh, with great risk, mm. which I think human beings see as a a high virtue, especially in business or investing. Like that's that's something that can make people rich, and it's the same trait that can save lives. But I, you can also do the inverse of it. It's the same trait that can that can destroy you. Yeah. 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 Okay. Anything else you'd like to add before we move on to the next? I don't think so. Okay. C.S. Lewis writes, If the moral law was one of our instincts, we ought to be able to point to some one impulse inside us, which was always what we call good, always in agreement with the rule of right behavior, but you cannot. I suppose in that he's saying... It would always be the same mechanism, but I and I would argue that it is, and that mechanism is uh, life and cost of life. Like, if it's a young person or an old person, you choose the youngest because they have the most life left to spend. If it's a man and a dog, you may choose the man because he's your he's your brother mm. or your sister. It's a woman. If it's a man about to get hit by a car, it's 
his life or your life. That's where it gets trickier and that's where the risk proposition comes in. Yeah. So I disagree there that say it's not always unrecognizable, but it is harder to recognize when you get into finer details like like theft, which is always wrong. Yeah. But can be is justified by certain nefarious actors. Um I'm sure there's others that I'm not able to think of at the moment. Do you have anything? Um, not so much on that, but I think those types of situations get complicated by emotion, too. Because, say, you're going to save your grandmother or, like, this random little girl you don't know. Like, you're going to save your grandma because mm. you have an emotional attachment to your grandmother. But is that the most moral thing to do? I say no. I'm not sure because they're both human life. Yeah. So... And I hope my grandma doesn't listen to this. <laughs> yeah, you better hope not. But I'm talking like <laughs> pen to paper. The math is grandma lived most of her life. That little girl hasn't yet. Hmm. This is a good point. But I don't know if that's what... I don't know. I don't know. I just think that's an interesting thing to think about. Because, okay, you could say I, I was reading this one... One other thing for school one time about um, how embryos are frozen or um, what is it like aborted, you know, like fetuses. fetuses, yeah, are frozen and like used for stem cell research. And um, people who think that that is morally okay, which obviously in a Christian's eyes it would be not because you're like wasting life. Um, they argue that, well, it's okay because, say, for example, like, this building we're burning down, and, you know, you're, you have the option to either, either save 3,000 embryos or your three-year-old daughter who's stuck in the building, like, who are you going to save? And, like, trying to prove that the embryo life is worthless versus, like, your actual daughter, but the thing is, like, you have an emotional attachment to your daughter. Of course, you're going to save your daughter. But those embryos, there's thousands of them, and they could have their whole life ahead of them. So you could make that argument as well. I'm going to say nothing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It just gets interesting because emotion makes everything complicated, either for better or for worse. I think typically usually for worse, but it definitely depends on the situation. Emotion is very instinctual. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, geez. This is, this is all marked up. Oh, my Here goodness. Here we go. All right, CS. What do you got? Strictly speaking, there are no such things as good and bad impulses. The most dangerous thing you can do is to take any one impulse of your own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. I would agree. Mm-hmm. And I think this goes into a belief I, I a belief I've heard at church before, um, and I hold, is that if you don't follow the Lord and Creator of the universe, you follow one of His creations. Yeah. And our emotions are paramount to that. Yeah. I mean, like, you could just worship at the altar of fear all day. 
-hmm. and tons of people do it Mm -hmm. nowadays. You spend all day doom scrolling on Reddit or Twitter (laughs) or you just watch CNN all day or Fox or whatever you're watching and you just get your little your little juice of everything's ending and I need to panic. I need to worry. I need to spend all my money because it's not going to be around much longer anyways. And it's just not healthy. Yeah. Not beneficial to you beneficial to the makers of it because they're and i went to film school (laughs) which is why i'm doing which i'm doing this yeah and uh and courier driving (laughs) and i learned (laughs) that um manipulating emotions is the number one key to success Mm -hmm. in film and entertainment is you find people's pressure points and you hit them and for most people, that's fear. For most people, that's money. Mm-hmm. For most people, that's also health. Mm-hmm. And if you can mix those things into a cocktail of uh, watch this, you need to watch it, you're going to get a lot of clicks. Yeah. So that's why we can't worship at the altar of uh, of our instincts, of our impulses. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard it said multiple times that human beings are worshiping creatures and you know, we say all the time in the Christian community, like, if you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something. That's, yeah, I think that's definitely true of everyone. But Yeah. C.S. Lewis goes on. Other people wrote to me saying, isn't what you call the moral law just a social convention, something that is put into us by education? He continues, we all learned the multiplication table at school. A child who grew up alone on a desert island would not know it, but surely it does not follow that the multiplication table is simply a human convention, something human beings have made up for themselves and might have made different if they had liked. There are two reasons for saying it belongs to the same class as mathematics. The first is, though there are differences between the moral ideas of one time or country and those of another, the differences are not really very great. Not nearly so great as most people imagine. And you can recognize the same law running through them all. The other reason is this. When you think about these differences between the morality of one people and another, do you think that the morality of one people is ever better or worse than that of another? Have any of the changes been improvements? Progress means not just changing, but changing for the better. If no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring civilized morality to savage morality or Christian morality to Nazi morality. The moment you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are in fact measuring them both by a standard, saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. Yeah, so that's what I was referring to earlier, was we seem to all have a standard of morality, constantly comparing it to like different types of moralities that have taken shape, and it's like, where does that standard originally come from yeah and we were having that argument just before yeah yeah i think this is the strongest argument yeah is that no matter who you talk to about this both parties if if they're in agreement or disagreement are both vetting from the same standard Mm -hmm. they're just having a hard time agreeing the objective nature of that standard and where it comes from and why but everybody feels this standard, most everybody, which is such a, which is such a cool 
fact, but also something that makes me think of it more as an instinct sort of impulse than C.S. Lewis would argue because of that very nature. But I can also see that fear and anger are much easier to agree on a standard for than morality. Yeah. Which could be why he separates it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I definitely don't see morality as much of an impulse just because it's like it's typically not your first thought like it's something that you have to sort of think about for for a minute and decide between your impulses or to like reject them altogether but i don't know yeah yeah he writes if the rule of decent behavior meant simply whatever each nation happens to approve there would be no sense in saying that any one nation had ever been more correct in its approval than any other. No sense in saying that the world could ever grow morally better or morally worse. I conclude, then, that though the differences between people's ideas of decent behavior often make you suspect that there is no real natural law of behavior at all, yet the things we are bound to think about, these differences... Sorry. Yet the things we are bound to think about these differences really prove just the opposite. It's weirdly said. It's weirdly yeah. written. It's, yeah, some of the things are a little hard to follow. Yeah, so I think at least one thing that can be agreed on by everyone about morality is that it exists whether we like it or not. Like, no matter what we think of it, like, it's there. Yeah. And this is the part where um, I'm going to connect my icebreaker because... <laughs> You could use the analogy of, say, a cookie, okay? So, say, like, person number one says, I don't like cookies. Obviously, they're insane. So, <laughs> um, then you could say, okay, well, person number two says, well, I like cookies. These two could argue all day about the concept of a cookie, but no matter what they think of it, the cookie exists. That's... A common argument used for God is like, okay, no matter what you think of it, he's there, he exists. And I think that's the argument C.S. Lewis is trying to use for morality overall, is that like, no matter what you think, it's there. Like, no matter what it's become or what it was, it's here. Yeah. And I think in that last blurb that he wrote, he was saying, although I think strangely, that because it's not because people are able to agree on morality because it's so hard, it's almost impossible to. Yeah but because it's something that's constantly brought into question yeah, that it must exist. And I suppose he's not so much arguing that it's created by God, but he's arguing it's, I mean, it's kind of brilliant. He's arguing for this almost intangible idea that we all share mm -hmm. that is, that varies from person to person. And I, I, we haven't read ahead yet, but I assume he's going to equate that to God yeah. in that sense. Yeah. That, yeah, just as you said, God is, is so similarly discussed and talked about that you could talk to mo a lot of non-Christians. They say, yeah, I believe in something. Mm -hmm. I don't know what. Yeah. And that in itself is, is fascinating. That goes back to human beings feel this desire to worship something. Yeah. And I think the culture does a great job of taking advantage of that mm -hmm. and selling um, freedom. Yeah freedom wrapped in control they do a really good job at selling you freedom selling you control as freedom yeah 
And I think Christianity does a really good job at selling you freedom through control. Yeah. That's, yeah, very well put, yeah. I hope I didn't get backwards there. No, no, I think that makes sense. But there's much more to discuss. Uh, Let's just try to stay on the first two chapters. Um, I think I equated it a lot to my life Mm. and um, all throughout this. To to wrap it up, I would just say, you know, so far C.S. Lewis is laying down a really good logical argument um, and really just building a foundation for his argument for Christianity and what it means to be Christian. Uh, I'm so curious to see where he's he's going. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely been a very fascinating journey. I'm I'm digging it so far. I don't think I've read anything by C.S. Lewis yet other than like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> and I've been really, really wanting to. So this has been good. The only other thing I read of his was The Magician's Nephew. Oh, you read that? Yeah, oh, I liked man. it. I liked it a great a great deal. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. So to be reading. Oh, I also read the screw tape. Screw tape letters. Oh, cool. Which was a very funny, kind of satirical look at human nature. Mm. And I would highly recommend it if you are a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I would highly recommend it because it's quite funny. <laughs> and it's uh, it's it opened. I mean, I was a Christian when I read it, but it opened my eyes more to the stakes of morality, and did so in a very humorous way. Mm. Nice. Mm-hmm. I think that's all I got, Alyssa. Very nice. Well, shall we um, exit with our... We're going to leave you with passages of... Little passages of scripture to be ruminating on. Um, would you like to share first? I will share first. Alyssa found these. She is much more scholarly than I. No. First verse we're going to read today is Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Yeah, I was just thinking about that one in reference to the fact that um this sense of morality that we have is all common and that we're made in the image of something in the image of creator. So what is created must reflect a creator, right? Uh, the other one that I found is 1 John 5, 3. It says, loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So as long as we love the Lord and we want to do what he's commanding us to do, those commandments don't seem burdensome because they're coming from someone that we love. Epic. <laughs> and I believe that is the end? That is the end for now. Yeah? Yeah, this was our very first podcast together like a test podcast for uh this christian book club we'd like to start just casually um if you're listening to us from our home church calvary shout out to calvary shout out (laughs) ya is tonight it is thursday at 7 p.m at the calvary community church please stop by uh all are welcome yeah sounds creepy yeah. But it's true. <laughs> there's there's usually snacks. So mm-hmm. just take a snack and leave. You can do that. <laughs> you have that freedom. Our our arms are open. Yeah. Yeah. Uh thank you so much for, for listening. <laughs> Please rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. Yeah. Yeah. This has been Yale. 
And Alyssa. <laughs> and we will hopefully speak to you again soon. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye.